Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Genesis 21, 1-7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here in these spaces this morning. And would you give us your Holy Spirit that we would understand your word. As we were hearing from Scott in Theology 101 this morning, Lord, your word is perfect. Help us to be molded by it more and more, and bring us through the reading and preaching of your scriptures, O Father, into the kind, healing, renovative, forgiving presence of your Son, who died and rose again for us. Do a good work now, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. For different ones of us, we probably have different signs of spring. This does not feel like a morning where spring is going to be coming to us anytime soon. But for you, what are some signals, things that you look forward to every year or things that don't occur in the spring, but it triggers your memory and it feels a little bit like springtime all over again? For me, it is New Orleans brass bands. New Orleans brass bands, whether they're from a long time ago, it's, it's a living tradition. New Orleans brass bands, and there's so much life and energy and percussion the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival is every April, and I try to get to that as much as, as much as I possibly can, so that's also a signal of spring to me. And before I forget, in a couple of weeks, there's going to be one of my favorite contemporary New Orleans brass bands playing at World Cafe Live. So if you want to come with me to the Soul Rebels Brass Band, let me know if we get enough people. Maybe we can see if we can get a church discount on a party bus so that, that Liberty Collingswood can go cross the bridge together, but you should definitely listen to New Orleans brass bands, and not just with New Orleans brass bands, but one of the distinctive sounds of New Orleans music in general is what's been called the second line. How many of you have heard of New Orleans second line, one way or another? So it's tied most directly to drums. What I say about New Orleans drumming is you know it's New Orleans drumming if you can't quite air drum correctly, because it's polyrhythmic, and What happened in the 1950s was you had New Orleans drummers who absorbed all of the polyrhythmic percussion from an entire marching brass band with this kind of drum and this kind of drum and tambourines all over the place. And only in New Orleans were those sounds mixed together into one drum kit. So 
Why is it called second line? There's a couple different historical layers to it. For one thing, in parades for this day, not Mardi Gras parades in this case, but a brass band parade, there are two lines. The first line is the band itself. So it starts with the grand marshal and then maybe a flag boy and a spy boy. And then you have the band playing. But then after that, there's a whole other group of people that just start walking and partying and meander and mosey after the official band itself. That is the second line. But you can go back a little bit further. New Orleans second line things and drumming comes from jazz funerals in New Orleans, particularly in the African-American and Creole traditions. So this is what a jazz funeral traditionally to this day is in New Orleans. After the funeral at the church, what you do is you have a brass band waiting outside, and the brass band leads you all the way on foot to the cemetery where the body is not buried because you can't bury underground <laughs> in, in New Orleans, but the body's put somewhere. And then on the way back, the band's still playing. And it's like this. It's a dirge and then a celebration. Going to the funeral, the brass band plays very, very sad spirituals and hymns and Christian songs. But then on the way back, the band plays celebratory hymns and songs. Very, very slow going very, very fast coming. A few years ago, there is another New Orleans brass band called Dirty Dozen Brass Band. You can find them on Spotify or wherever. Funeral for a Friend is the name of the album. And you have both types of songs. The slowest of slow renditions I have ever heard of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It is super, super slow. That's one of the dirges. But then you also have Some Glad Morning. And so you have the party songs, too. And it's a spectacular album. But you have to have both, right? There's the dirge, the very sad, slow songs, because death is to be grieved. Death is the final enemy. But then why do you have the celebratory songs later on? Because a funeral, in one sense, is a homecoming. It's a celebration. This brother or sister has died. And has gone on to be with Jesus. Even in the midst of all of our grief, there's something to celebrate there. And so the first line goes, dirge. Second line comes back, celebration. And there's deeper roots even than that, going back to West Africa. And it has some connections to historical enslavement as well. But jazz, funerals, second line, drumming. It's spectacular. And it also reflects, as Christian roots, uh, it reflects a worldview. Dirge and then celebration, death, but also homecoming, that is a reflection of and a statement of an affirmation of a faith commitment, what you believe is true. And this is a question that my wife Emily and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. If you haven't tuned in to the Post-Sunday Blues, you can find it off of our website. That's when we talk through the sermon, Emily and I, after pretty much every week. We were talking about tragedies and comedies. Traditionally speaking, whether it's Shakespeare going all the way back to Greek drama, what is the arc of a play when it is a tragedy? Think of two U's. A tragedy starts low, but then in the middle, things get a little bit better and a little bit better, but then by the end, spoiler alert, Romeo and Juliet die, right? Tragedy. But for comedies, Shakespeare had comedies, Ancient Greece had comedies. It's a right side up you where it starts with a bang 
and then there's, if you think of a romantic comedy, you have, you have the two leads, they meet cute, things are going great, but then there's some stress in the relationship in the middle, it dips, but then it's happily ever after at the end. This is the question that I wanted to talk about this morning. In your heart of hearts, whether you think about yourself as a follower of Jesus or not, or you're not quite sure yet, do you believe that life for you is a comedy or a tragedy? Do you think it's a tragedy? Functionally speaking, my life's just not going to get good. Things are just going to get worse and worse. Other people get good breaks, I get bad breaks. And even if there's a situation where there's a little bit of good for a little while, that just means that I'm in the middle part of the upside-down U, but then things are going to go downhill again, and that's where they're going to stay. Or, in your heart of hearts, do you believe, okay, there's going to be some hard stuff, but you know what? Even in the ultimate sense in Jesus, there's going to be a homecoming, and God will bless me. And God will do good to me, including I trust and I hope and I pray in this life. Whether you think your life is a comedy or a tragedy, it shapes everything. Here's some inside baseball. How do I find quotes in a sermon? Well, whether I'm reading on my Kindle or reading a book and I make a manual note, if I see something that I think, oh, that might be cool to have in my quote file for some sermon down the road, I just highlight it and then I tag it. And I have my own little tag system of all of these different words that I keyword search by because, oh, I'm preaching, and some, some of it's Christian stuff, so justification, sin, but then it's cultural issues too, so consumerism or fragmentation. One of my most common tags in my little quote Rolodex, it's three words, so I have to search, keyword search for three, power of story, and that's esoteric to me but all over the place in so much literature and fiction and nonfiction, the assertion is made that narratives shape who we are. And we talk about that a lot here at Liberty Collingswood. We interpret our world through the stories that we believe to be true about that world. For example, one of my favorite recent authors, Robert Stone, put it this way. The power of narrative is shattering, overwhelming. We are the stories we believe. We are who we believe we are. All the reasoning of the world cannot set us free from our mythic systems. We live and die by them. And everybody has a story. And if you live according to the jazz funeral worldview, life is a comedy. Life ultimately will be really, really, really good. And that's a cathartic story, a hopeful story. Or if life is a tragedy... None of that is true. Things are just going to get worse. Let's play a word associ association game, kind of like taboo. What words come to mind and are connected to comedy? What other things? One of those words associated with comedy, it's not because you cry so much when you watch a comedy, but what do you do when you watch a really funny comedy? You laugh, which connects us here with the text. Laughter, the birth of Isaac, that's Isaac's name. He laughs. Laughter. And this is a wonderful story here that needs to be interpreted well. But you might say that this birth of Isaac's story is a comedy, not in the funny ha-ha sense, but in the sense of they've been waiting a long time, Abraham and Sarah, for this baby. And finally, this baby is here. And for you, for me, 
In Jesus, if you follow him, you already affirm on a piece of paper and we're called to live into the fact that life is a divine comedy. And if you believe that, that'll shape you. That'll make you a different person. So two parts from here, as we look at the story of the birth of Isaac, how not to interpret this passage, and then how to grow into this passage. So first, how not to interpret this passage. And by way of explanation, we are continuing on here in the book of Genesis. We've had a ton about Abraham and Sarah so far. And you might say the key theme of this passage is that God is faithful to his covenant promises. God is faithful. He carries things through. We've talked a lot about covenant in this Genesis sermon series, the structure of God's promises by which he will redeem a people. God promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and your descendants, they will be as multiple as sand on the seashore. And as part of that, God promised years ago, Abraham and Sarah, you might be old, but you're going to have a baby, which is necessary for God's covenant promises to come. For God to be faithful to the promises to Abraham and Sarah, there's got to be a kid. And then finally, there is. And it's stressed right at the beginning of the story. Twice in the first verse, we're reminded of God being faithful. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. That's one. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, as he has said, as he has promised. God is now fulfilling. And there's also joyous reversal here because there's a callback, laughter. When the angels originally announced to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby, what does Sarah do? She laughs. But it's probably a disbelieving or maybe even a scornful laugh. I don't see how that could be true. But here in this passage, Sarah's laughter is joyful. End of the passage, 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son at his old age. And now, the two ways to misinterpret this story, in my opinion, and there's probably others, but let's just pick two of them. You can either over-spiritualize this passage or you can under-spiritualize this passage. Don't do either one of those things. Over-spiritualizing. In this case, what I would mean by that is you read this story. God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah believed it, and then it happened. Therefore, for you and me, if you believe in Jesus, all you have to do is ask God for something, and he's going to give it to you. Just believe it, and it's yours. And if you believe enough that new job, that new spouse, that clean bill of health, whatever it is, that's going to be for you. And we've talked a couple of times, this is not the tradition, Christian tradition that I'm in, but sometimes that can be called the prosperity gospel or word of faith movement or whatever it is. I'm just not on that page. And you might think, oh, it's a stereotype to say, well, if I just believe it and pray for it, I'm going to get a Lamborghini. But this can be operative in churches. For example, specifically with the issue of infertility, I know people, couples that have struggled with infertility, who have been in faith traditions that were told, hey, if you're struggling to have a child, all you have to do is believe more and pray more. And God's going to give you that baby. And something like that, that causes damage. I know people who have been damaged in exactly that way. And if that's part of your backstory one way or another, I am so, so sorry. But it's that type of over-spiritualizing everything, the easy believism, that a religious skeptic, and maybe this is where you are attitudinally today, 
you might think, oh, those Christians, they just believe stuff and think it's going to happen. The world doesn't work that way. But the Bible is very honest that there's a lot of suffering out there. So don't just over-spiritualize and say, God's going to give me everything that I want because he gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. So we need to eschew over-spiritualizing. But then on the other hand, how do we under-spiritualize this passage? Kind of like this. That's not true. God doesn't show up and do stuff for people. The story probably didn't happen in the first place. And more than that, we all know that when there's trouble and tragedy in our lives, the only way it's going to change is for me or some other person to change it. There's no God somewhere in the heavens up in the sky, a personal God who's going to listen and do something to help you. That's just not how life works. A recent author named Alison Bechdel wrote and drew a graphic novel memoir, and she says this at one point in it. We're a part of everything. Also, this is it. This is, the title is The Secret to Superhuman Strength. This is it. The only thing to transcend is the idea that there's something to transcend. There's no transcendent reality. There's no God above us, and we need to transcend that very idea that there is transcendence at all. And coming from that perspective, anything that smells of faith garners a scornful laughter. It's just not true. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, you might think, oh, that's not who I am. That's not what I believe. There is a transcendent God over all, all things. That's great if you think that. But let me observe as well that very, very often for Christians here in the late modern West, this under-spiritualizing, God's not going to show up. God's not going to help. God's not going to bless is actually exactly our functional worldview, right? And when we find ourselves in moments like that, under-spiritualizing a passage like this, God's not going to show up. God's not going to bless. God's not going to help. Functionally speaking again, we are operating in the mental and heart space of actually saying, my life is a tragedy, Things ultimately are going to get worse and worse and worse, and there's nothing, I believe, more basic than that. How do you know you're kind of on that downside of the tragic you? You go in to the doctor for an annual physical. You get a call back, maybe some blood work came in, and the doctor or nurse says over the phone, hey, we think everything's okay, but we'd like you to come back in for just a couple more tests. And you think to yourself, This is it. This is going to be bad news. I might be dying. Or if a friend or a loved one gives you, tells you something that is negative or might be a little bit negative or is probably neutral, but it could be interpreted in a negative way, that person hates me. Or at work, if your boss gives you some constructive feedback, you're still taking away and thinking, I'm going to lose my job. My boss is against me. The pseudo-English word, maybe it's made its way into the Oxford Dictionary by this point, catastrophizing. Do you know that word? You could, it's, therapists, it's in therapy and counseling a lot. When you take a little bit of bad news and you say, this news is horrible. And if the news is like a little bit this bad, then you go here and here and here and here and here. So you're not stressing out about here. You're catastrophizing. And so you're stressing out about here. That's where you are. That's where I am 
when functionally speaking, we're thinking life is a tragedy. And frankly speaking for myself, when I'm in a bad faith spot, and yes, pastors can be in bad faith spots, if there's something going on in my life that I don't like, if there's something that's really, really hard, if there's some suffering or a problem, and I'm in a bad faith spot, I don't even pray about it. I should. But functionally, again, my attitude of the heart, and my faith is so low, I'm not even going to pray about this. Because nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. And so for you, are there little aspects of your life or big overarching aspects of your life when you are operating under the conclusion that your life is a tragedy? Where are those places? Recognize them and understand too, and I don't mean this critically or judgmentally, that is an impoverished worldview. That's really not a fun way to live at all. And Jesus has something better for you. So that's how not to interpret this passage, both over and under spiritualizing it. How do we interpret it well and then lean in, grow in to, to whatever God has for us here? For example, what does the New Testament do with this story? How is it deployed? How is it understood? And what do you know? This story is talked about in a couple different places in the New Testament, including the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which is that great hall of fame for faith chapter. And Sarah is praised as an example for all of us. It goes like this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The author of Hebrews deploys this story to say, look at Sarah. This is a great example and a great encouragement to you to actually grow in faith and trust. Grow in that direction. And I think it's kind of like this. I'll try this on as a logical flow. If as a Christian, you believe God can save you, that means he can also help you. Get that? If God can save you, he can help you. But I think for a lot of us, or at least for me in that bad faith spot, I don't think since I became a Christian years and years ago, I've, I've ever thought, God can't save me, or this isn't real, or I'm not going to be ultimately with Jesus in heaven. But somehow there's a disconnect where I'm believing two contradictory things at once. Do I believe that God can save me? Do I believe that Jesus has died and has risen again and paid the penalty for my sins on the cross? Yes. But do I believe that God can help me with this really hard situation right now? No. You see how that doesn't make any sense? Or the Apostle Paul also leverages this passage in his letter to the Romans. A little bit of a longer quote, but he digs into the reality for us. This is why redemption depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. In the presence of the God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave God glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. (laughs) Commended to us are the faith and trust of Abraham and Sarah, and it was a long time coming. We have a time stamp here for Abraham in verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And we know from previous details and previous accounts of this story, about how long do you think it was between when God told through those angels, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby, and when the baby actually comes. 25 years. That's a really long time. And I want to speak delicately for those of you that have or may be experiencing infertility, but you know how hard that is. Imagine 25 years. And insofar as infertility can be tied to the menstrual cycle realistically, you know the month to month. Don't want to get your hopes up. But then another month goes by. Or maybe the woman is late for a couple of days, and you're thinking, maybe this is it, maybe this is it, maybe this is it. But then it's nothing. Imagine waiting on God's promise to be fulfilled for 25 years of 12 months, for 300 months. But God is faithful. You see, in Jesus Christ, the end is ahead and the Spirit is above. And press yourself into that reality. Life is a comedy. Next time, when you get some bad news, catch yourself, flag it, let it ping your radar, and say, wait a second, if I'm catastrophizing this, if I think my life is going crazy and downhill, wait a second, that's not what I believe. That's not the reality that I want to lean into right now. God, help me. God, I'm going to pray about this. God, I'm going to plead with you to show up and do something really, really good, not because I deserve it, but because I believe that Jesus lives and pleads for me as my great intercessor. And God, I know that at the end of time, you're going to wipe every tear away, and there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain forever. Don't let me be blown over by this bad news. And in addition to that, you don't have to over-spiritualize this passage to believe in, quote-unquote, miracles. In preparing for this sermon, I I came across a great definition for miracle by a Bible scholar named Walter Brueggemann. I'm not on the same page with him about everything, but he's a really good commentator, and this is what he says. It's, It's in your reflection quotes at the beginning of the worship folder. Miracle is not the violation of a natural order. It is the concrete assertion that God is faithful to his promises. Miracle is having disclosed again that we are not bounded by necessity, but by the freedom of God's love offered in faithfulness. If you're in a bad financial situation, you're not bound by your bank account. If you're in a bad medical situation, you are not ultimately bound by what that blood test reveals. If you're in what feels like an irreconcilably horrible relational situation, God can redeem that. Pray for that. Move in that direction. And if you're skeptical of spiritual realities, uh, functionally speaking in this case, probably you believe that life is a tragedy where eventually life's just going to get worse and worse and worse. 
this little spinning rock that we're on eventually is going to either get way too hot or way too cold, and life is just going to wind itself back down again into nothingness. That is going to be the ultimate tragedy as the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. I would suggest to you, hopefully graciously, smoke the whole pack. If you really think life is a tragedy, and this is going nowhere, just getting worse and worse and worse, do you have the courage to live up to that conviction? And if you ultimately think that life is nothing but a tragedy, and all of these good little stories that you tell, you, that you tell yourself to get you through and not stare into the abyss of nothingness that's waiting on you, I would contend that suspension of disbelief requires an act of faith, every bit as powerful and deliberate as believing in Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected. But on the other hand, you don't have to stay there, and you can move towards this Jesus and apply specifically wherever it is where life is a tragedy for you, that underside you, pray yourself into the reality that, wait a second, God's got me. If God can, can save me, he can help me, and I'm going to pray for better than what's going on right now. It takes the long view. Some of you are Philadelphia Sixers fans. We're getting our hopes up a little bit right now, and it's going to be very dangerous for us. I believe that life is a comedy, but Philadelphia sports is a tragedy. That's the little, the little part of it there. A couple general managers ago, and a lot of crazy shenanigans on the part of the Sixers, the author of the process where the Sixers got really, really bad on purpose to get a high draft pick that they squandered, most of them, but they did get Joel Embiid out of all of that. Sam Hinkie was eventually let go under pressure from the National Basketball Association because it was such a beautifully blatant tank that the NBA said, we, we can't have a professional sports organization tanking this outrageously and, and this, this, this badly. So Sam Hinkie and the Sixers parted ways. You can look online. Sam Hinkie letter, you can Google that. He wrote a resignation letter that went public, and it's spectacular. It has it quotes from philosophers. It talks about Western culture and civilization. I guarantee you, especially if you're a Sixers fan, if you read the Sam Hinkie letter, it's a stand on the desk and, oh, captain, my captain moment. But one of the famous phrases from that resignation letter, and he said, for a sports organization, and I do believe this is true, general managers and front offices need to have, quote, the longest view in the room. We need to look long-term. And when the time is right to go more all-in, yes, of course you should do that. But we're not just trying to win tomorrow. We're trying to win next year, five years, ten years from now. Christians are the ones, and it's freeing if we can do this, to have the longest view in the room all the way to eternity. And it takes discipline and practice to move in that direction. But when you do, and when you recontextualize all of the seemingly tragic details of your life, and they are real, into the reality that life is a divine comedy, that will change you. It will move you towards Christian obedience, which is stressed in this passage. Abraham obeyed. Verse 4, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. This God is really good to me. 
I want to obey. I want to bring my mind, my heart, my body into alignment with this God because he wants what's best for me. This is the God that I'm praying to for all of this. I better obey him too. And it'll form you for mission. If you're at Liberty Collingswood, we want to live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs wherever God has placed us. Remembering all that God has in store for us, that the end is ahead and the spirit is above, that really is good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.